Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning that it's not suitable for children, and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging.
I think, you know, every police officer says this too. They always have a case that they've never forgotten that stays with them forever and this will always be that one for me. Kate Kiriakou is the chief crime writer for Brisbane's Courier Mail and she's also the author of the excellent book about the undercover operation that caught Daniel Morecambe's killer called The Sting. In 2007, when Kate was a reporter for the Adelaide Advertiser, she took up the story of a missing woman from Mount Gambia whose elderly mum was waiting for a visit in hospital and whose bags were packed for a short holiday interstate. The mystery of Glennis Haywood's disappearance would end up providing Kate with some of the most memorable moments of her career. So I've been a journalist for 20 years and this is a case that has really stayed with me because it was so incredibly sad but also um, as we talk more it will become apparent. I report on domestic violence murders a lot and this is the one where To me, when people say, why didn't she just leave? Why doesn't she just leave? This case is why it's a lot more complicated than that. So I became aware of this when I was writing some coverage for the Adelaide Advertiser back in 2007 for National Missing Persons Week. I'd asked the police, you know, is there anyone you think I should focus on? And they'd initially mentioned another case, and I don't remember what that case was now. I just remember that at the last minute they came to me and said, oh, actually, can, can you write about this lady, Glennis Haywood from Mount Gambia? Can you write about her? Because she, she's only gone missing the last couple of days and there's something not right here. You know, we're a bit concerned about her. She was due to go on a holiday with her new partner and, you know, literally her suitcases are, are sitting by the front door. She'd gone to visit her son and no one knows where she is. So I wrote about her and over the next few days it became apparent that something very wrong had happened. So just going back a little bit in time, Glennis and Neil had been together since 1982. So this this crime happened in 2007. They'd been together for more than 20 years. They had two sons who were aged, I think, 20 and 24. Neil Haywood was a very, very violent, sadistic, horrible man. And some of the stories we heard over the months were just horrific, very physically violent. Some of the real sort of hallmarks of a a terrible, terrible relationship were all there. You know, she had very limited access to anyone outside of her immediate family. Um, She lived in fear. He'd tie her to the tree for an entire day, sometimes without clothing on, and she wasn't allowed to untie herself. We had this terrible story about a man coming to visit the dairy farm there and finding her like that. And he said, oh, my goodness, and untied her. And she went inside and got a glass of water and came back outside and said, can you tie me up again, please? Because if he comes home and sees me free, I'll be in a lot of trouble and so will you. So, you know, and he killed her animals. I think she was a real animal lover. He killed her dog and her horse, things like that. You know, often in domestic violence relationships, the the partner will threaten the animals or sometimes women don't leave because they think, They've got nowhere to take their pets and they think their partner will kill their pets. You know, it's just a pretty sort of standard threat. Was he violent towards the the kids? Uh, There was some suggestion of that. Uh, He was certainly violent towards a son that she'd had, and this is very sad. 
She had a son with her first husband interstate and brought that little boy with her to South Australia when she moved to the Mount Gambier area. And when she first got together with with Neil back in 1982, he was young, maybe five or six. And I know Neil was violent and abusive towards that little boy to the point that Glennis sent him away back to her ex-husband, back to his father, uh, because she was terrified of what would happen to him and she knew that he wasn't safe around Neil. So she basically said goodbye to him at the airport and never saw him again. And that little boy grew up thinking that his mother had abandoned him. So she then went on to have two sons with him, did she? Yeah, with Neil, yes, that's right, Thomas and Matthew. And um, she ran their dairy farm, which was very successful. Oh, not so much ran it, but she worked very hard on it. You know, I think a lot of his success was due to her hard work. Even other people described him as very weird, didn't they? If they didn't know or didn't sort of really acknowledge that they knew that there was violence in the relationship, people who'd known him for a long time or known them for a long time said they knew he was weird. Yeah, or something not quite right about him. And they never actually married, did they, even though she took his name? That's correct, yeah. She changed her name. She was married once before, but she took his name, but they never got married. I remember he let her go to a Weight Watchers meeting once a week because he used to claim that she was fat, which she wasn't, um, but regardless who, who says that. So he would let her go to town once a week for a Weight Watchers meeting. Imagine that being the only outing you're allowed to go to, a Weight Watchers meeting. Yeah. That says a lot. Yep. But she's a very smart lady and she used that uh, meeting to help her escape and she'd spoken to friends and said um the boys are older now the youngest Matthew was 20 and I think Thomas was 24 so they didn't need her protection she was comfortable leaving her husband and basically went into hiding so at the Weight Watchers meeting she'd take a couple of items of clothing each time and very gradually left them with a friend so that when she needed to leave she had what she needed and he didn't know so she was actually quite smart about it. So one day she went off to her Weight Watchers meeting and didn't come back, went into hiding. In the Mount Gambia area, because I would imagine he would know that's a small town, like a big area, but small town, that he would know everyone there. Yeah, that's right. He was quite well known around town. Uh, They had a, a house like in the sort of CBD area and then they had the dairy farm And that's why she had to be very careful. So I think she went to stay with friends on another dairy farm and she was sort of working for her keep there, I guess. And she asked them to keep it a secret. And even to the point where she was worried about where she'd park her car or she asked them, you know, the work pigeonhole, she didn't want her name on it. So she really very much went into hiding. So at some point though, did she sort of get out from under that and start living a life? She did. She'd found a new boyfriend, but I still think she kept her whereabouts very close to her chest. Her, her sons didn't know where she was. Her ex didn't know where she was. Glennis, quite rightly, had started court proceedings to try and access some of the family's estate, given she worked to build up that dairy farm for many years and has every right to it. She was asking for $2 million. The, their properties together were worth about $6 million. And Neil was obviously furious about this. As the minute she didn't come home, he stopped her access to all of their bank accounts. He didn't want her to have anything and was telling everybody, uh, particularly their sons, that she was 
basically trying to rob them of their what was due to them and tried very hard to turn Glenys's sons against her. So there's just no way that Neil was ever going to agree to give her any sort of settlement whatsoever. At some point, her younger son, Matthew, who she was very close to, he managed to track her down and got in touch with her, I think, through a third party. And she had told people that she trusted Matthew. But at some point, he tracked her down and he said, oh, mom, you know, we haven't seen each other in a long time. Why don't you come around for dinner? And so she, she went around for dinner. Matthew was living in the house with his girlfriend and I think a couple of other people. And she was supposed to stay the night. She'd brought stuff with her to stay the night, I think toiletries and things like that. He said at some point during the night, oh, mum, my girlfriend and I are thinking of buying this house. Do you want to come and have a look? She said, sure. So he got in the car with her and drove her across town to a house. And that house was actually an abandoned childcare centre. And went and opened the front door and Neil and a farmhand from the dairy farm named Jeremy Minter were waiting inside. Neil attacked her in the house and Matthew turned around and walked away. You know, Glenys was held down by this farmhand. Neil kicked her in the face. She turned to the farmhand and said, I hope you're proud. They held her down, they tied her up and they stuffed her into a wheelie bin which they put on the back of the ute. Matthew had gone, this was Jeremy and Neil. Thomas, the older son, was also, according to evidence, at the property as well, but outside, and drove Jeremy Minter home. Then Neil drives off on his own with Glenys in the wheelie bin. She was still alive at this point. Oh, my God. He drove her over the Victorian border to the property of a friend and he assaulted her there. She had multiple fatal uh, skull fractures and he buried her in a septic pit on that property, which no one lived at that property. It was just a property that belonged to somebody that he knew and that person obviously had did not know what Neil wanted to go there for. So at this point, you know, as a youngish journalist in, in Adelaide, we, we were covering a missing persons case where we knew that there was this history of this horrible domestic violence relationship that her son had invited her around for dinner, that he hadn't reported her missing, that she had been trying to access part of the estate, that her husband was a horrible man. And this went on for several months where, you know, I guess everyone knew that it must have been him, but the police at that time didn't know where Glennis was and could, obviously couldn't prove it at that point. I called him very early on. It must have been Neil. in the first few days. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I got him on the phone and, you know, I, I said to him, what's happened to Glennis? And he said, oh, you know, she's, she's got problems. Oh, she's, she's gone off and, and killed herself. You know, she's tried it before. She's, you know, she's got issues. I said, well, a lot of people think you killed her. I think he ended the conversation pretty quickly after that. And then I was sent to Mount Gambia, I think, three or four times as the case sort of progressed or different things happened. And I do remember one occasion where we were just following him around town, just being, you know, a complete nuisance to him really. Um, And we followed him 
I think he had a big white four-wheel drive. We were following him around town and he went, he drove into this sort of industrial backstreet area and I was with a photographer named Dylan and Dylan and I used to work together on these sorts of things all the time. And um, so Neil was pulled up in front of just some sort of shop in the industrial backstreets in Mount Gambia and I said just, just wait in the car across the road with your long lens and just I'll go up and talk to him and you can take photos. And Dylan said, yeah, no worries. And so I've walked across the road and it's hard to describe on a podcast, but I was basically standing along a fence waiting for him to come out of this shop that he'd gone into, but I couldn't see what shop it was. I couldn't see it, but Dylan could across the road and he was waving madly to me. And, you know, he was supposed to be there keeping a low profile. So I was like, what are you doing? Um, and I was sort of waving at him to stop. And then he's opened the car door. So I thought he, he clearly needs to tell me something. So I ran across the road and he said, oh, my God, did you see, can you see what shop he went into? And I said, no. And I, I had a view of it from where I was by the car. And it was Mount Gambier guns and ammunition. I said, oh, look, just stick to the plan. I'm going back across the road. And... Oh, I just, Dylan wasn't happy about it, but um, he walked out. He'd gone in with this massive pair of bolt cutters. He had bolt cutters. And I remember thinking, where is he taking those bolt cutters when he walked into the shop? And then when he, when he came out, he had something wrapped in a big oil cloth, like, a, you know, God knows. And so I thought, it's all right, it's all right. I would just, I would just talk to him quickly. It's, it's daytime, whatever. And I said, oh, Neil, um, do you still think your wife committed suicide? Because I don't think anyone thinks that. I don't think anyone thinks that. I followed him along the footpath a little bit and he just did not respond to me, didn't even look up. And then he got into his car. I was sort of started walking back towards where Dylan was along that same footpath. And, um, yeah, he got into his car, slammed the door and like revved the engine and just drove towards me. And I remember we had this kind of standoff where I was on the footpath. He would have, you know... I didn't think anything was going to happen and, you know, it didn't. But he he drove very, very close to where I was standing and rev gunned the engine to try and sort of intimidate me. And, yeah, I was just too stubborn to do anything about it. So I just stood there and stared at this enormous four-wheel drive. No, I think guys like that do want to intimidate women. And when they know that there's a woman journalist tracking them I think they're yeah his fallback position is to try and intimidate you yeah he wouldn't have liked being followed around town we were just and I mean to be honest you know there's there's a small amount of satisfaction when you when you're doing that to someone that you know is just an evil evil man who's yes horrifically murdered his wife and is is basically just the heat's on him so badly from the police and then the media are sniffing around so great I hope we inconvenienced him I hope we made him feel uncomfortable you know I hope we did and I think there's a reason why you know oftentimes those guys do slip up in the presence of female journalists Mm -hmm. and female coppers Mm -hmm. I think the rage of your status in their presence they can't do anything to you they actually can't intimidate you 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 do have a kind of an authority authority over them it can make them slip up Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. So how did he slip up in the end? What happened? Well, it was oh, well. I'll tell you how he slipped up. He involved other people in his plan. Jeremy Minter, the farmhand, started bragging to people around town that he'd been paid to help Neil murder his wife. Can you imagine the stupidity of thinking that that's a bragging point? That I think he was at a nightclub and he was talking to like a security person or something, and he said, oh, "I got paid three thousand dollars to help this guy kill his wife." Can you imagine? What kind of person or the stupidity involved in bragging about murdering a terrified woman who'd escaped a violent relationship and you've lured her in and helped her former husband murder her? I I just, for $3,000 apparently was what he was telling people. And so what happened is police put um, a couple of covert officers on him to befriend him and get him talking and, and they did and he told them what had happened and they sort of went from there and he ended up being interviewed by police and he told them basically what had gone down and then after that police went and um, they arrested Thomas and Matthew and Jeremy obviously and they were looking for Neil. Neil was missing. He must have got wind that they'd been arrested. He, he was gone. And so police were out looking for him everywhere and they were searching his properties around town. And, and so all the media obviously rocked back into town and were waiting for them to find Neil and arrest him. And I remember we'd been hanging around town all day watching police search all these properties for him. And then after they'd done that, we ended up outside the Mount Gambier police station and we ended up staying outside the station all through the night and it was a very cold night and police were just out trying to chase up on leads and nothing we could see or do. We were just sitting outside the police station. We had a cameraman in Brisbane who was doing the overnight shift who had access to all of these, I guess, like um, emergency services feeds that they used to give us access to. This is a long time ago. They don't these days. But it had just let us know you know, there's a car crash at this intersection or there's something. And we said to him, if you see anything that's in this part of South Australia, anywhere around here, anything at all, you need to ring us immediately and tell us what it is in case they've found Neil. 
And I think it was about three or four in the morning. He rang and said, they've just asked the SES to help set up a roadblock at a town called Beachport. And we said, we're going, you know, that's it, we're going. I can't remember how long the drive was between Mount Gambier and Beachport, maybe like an hour or something. And we all got in our cars and we, we drove away. When we got there, they'd found Neil, because Neil had a new girlfriend as well, and she, her family owned a beach house at Beachport and he was there. And so the police had surrounded the house and it ended up in a siege And the siege went for about six hours where they had him inside the house. And I remember it was the star group, which is kind of like the elite, you know, police that they bring in for high-risk jobs. And they were throwing rocks through the windows of the house because it's it's a, you know, they, they do that to sort of, I guess, make sure that he gets into one portion of the house so they know where he is within the house they can sort of herd him into a bedroom or whatever if they're throwing rocks through every other window in the house and so he was in a bedroom and he ended up self-harming with a knife and you know he collapsed and they ran in and got him out and we then um, followed the ambulance to hospital when they took him to hospital and This is another amazing thing, memory that I have. I remember the paramedics who wheeled him out. He'd stabbed himself in the neck. He was in it, you know, he was covered in blood. He he was not in a great way. In the end, I think his wounds were a lot more superficial than people realise. But I remember the paramedics got out and we were all crowded around the back of the ambulance, which, again, we would never do. But this, this guy, it was impossible to show any sort of, you know, respect or kindness towards him because we we just sort of knew what he was like and what he what he was about so anyway we crowded around the back of the ambulance and um the paramedics got really angry with us and told the police to move us out of the way and I remember a paramedic leant over him and said it's okay mate you're going to be okay and he said it with such kindness and I remember thinking you know what, like even in this town they would know exactly who this guy is and what he's done and how evil he is. But if you your job is to have no care at all about someone's situation and your job is to care for them as a patient, and I remember thinking, yeah, what an amazing human this paramedic who showed kindness to the most evil person because it doesn't matter who he is. His job is to make sure that this person's okay yeah. you know anyway it's like the way police talk about you know having to build a rapport when they're interviewing people like that like the worst human beings and having mm-hmm. to be able to sit across from them and treat them with dignity and make them feel like they're their friend and you know and you think god it's not for everyone that job yeah certainly yep. yeah so after that you know he was charged with murder as well and um he was put into a into prison awaiting trial and while awaiting trial he hanged himself in the shower. Did he ever confess to anything in, in his, I'm assuming he was interviewed at some stage, Neil? Well, I don't think he ever spoke to the police. You don't wow. have to speak to the police uh, if you don't want to. He never confessed to anything. He, in fact, uh, at the inquest into his death in prison, uh, a social worker spoke about how he was very sad in jail. He cried all the time and he blamed everything on Glennis. She was the bad one and he was the good one, you know, until yeah. the end, just an asshole till the end. So how were, were Glennis's remains found? 
Yeah, so what happened is after the arrest, the man who owned that property came forward and said, oh, hang on, actually, Neil Neil told me that he wanted to use my property. I'm pretty sure you'll find her there. And he said he didn't want to come forward earlier because he was worried that Neil was trying to, you know, frame him in some way. And so he, uh, police went to that property. I think it was took them four months to find her body. Yeah, and very unfortunately her, her, her body told a very horrible story about what she'd endured. You know, I think she was still tied up and horrific injuries. So did Minta ever confess to anything or, or were, was all of the information about her injuries ascertained through autopsy? I think he was pretty open about what had occurred at the house. He held her arms as Neil kicked her in the face, you know. I think he still told the court that he didn't think any harm would come to her even though he held her down while she was assaulted, you know, which is just ludicrous. But then Neil drove her away and basically beat her to death at that location over the Victorian property there on his own. So he never faced trial, but his son, who he lured into this plot, was sentenced to 23 years behind bars. Is there any suggestion that Matthew possibly, I'm I'm hoping against hope, that Matthew didn't know the true purpose of the meeting? Um, I understand it's a meeting in an abandoned building at night time that she didn't know the purpose of and, you know, his dad and another guy are waiting for her. But is there any chance that Matthew didn't know that there was going to be violence in the building that night? Well, it's interesting you should say that because that was the case he put to the court at his trial and uh, he said he just thought they were going to talk. But the prosecution said that he knew full well what was going to happen and the jury, you know, went with that. The jury agreed. Then uh, his conduct after that was suspicious as well because he told police that his mum had just left the house and hadn't come back and that he believed she was going away for two weeks to visit a friend, that she'd apparently left her toiletries and possessions at his house, you know. There was also nowhere for her to actually stay in his house. There was no spare bed or anywhere she could have stayed. He didn't report her missing, you know, he never reported her missing. I think her mother or her new boyfriend did. But he maintained at trial that he never would have heard his mother, that he just thought his dad wanted to speak to her. But you don't you don't organise a late-night meeting between your aggressive, abusive, violent father in an abandoned childcare centre where another guy is waiting. They've got, a, you know, shackles and rope and stuff in the back of the ute to tie her up with. It's just horrible. I wonder what Matthew's non-parole period was. I mean, he was only, what, 22 or something when he went. His non-parole was 23 years, yeah. So he's actually going to be still a young man um, yeah. when he's released from jail. Did he ever express remorse for, for what happened for his mum? I think at trial he spoke about his pain of losing his mother for sure. He said that he loved his mum. You know, she was a beautiful mother. He He's devastated you know, that she's dead and he never would have wanted her harmed. He said that, but obviously, you know, I'm sure he did did love his mum to some extent, you know, but the jury just didn't buy that he had nothing to do with her death. It's interesting that, that both Minta and Matthew received such hefty sentences given that they weren't actually present when, when Neil murdered Glennis, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think, though, that the prosecution said and the jury accepted that the murders could not have occurred without them. The prosecution case was that Matthew lured her to her death and that Jeremy knew he was helping Neil carry out, you know, the abduction and murder of his former wife. An Adelaide court has begun hearing appeals by two men convicted over the murder of Mount Gambier woman Glenys Hayward. The Court of Criminal Appeal was told youngest son Matthew Hayward had no motive because he stood to gain more financially if his mother was alive. His lawyer Lindy Powell said it was one of many elements of Hayward's defence which wasn't properly summed up to the jury at the trial in March. On Friday, Hayward and farmhand Jeremy Minter were both sentenced to at least 23 years in jail for helping Hayward's father murder his mother. Hopefully a step towards finality for the family of uh, Dennis Hayward. And uh, it's, look, there are no winners in this case. We just uh, are glad that the result came out as it did. It's also important to say too that Thomas, the older son, was also charged with murder and then the charges were dismissed by a magistrate, I think due to lack of admissible evidence. Uh, so he was charged but the charges were dismissed. So he wasn't in the end convicted of anything? No, nothing. What was his story as to why he was there and what he thought was happening? And Most people involved claimed at the time that they just thought Neil wanted to speak to her and they weren't aware of anything else untoward. He wanted to speak to her because she was trying to force them into selling the family's dairy farm and, you know, nobody wanted that. And I, I see that Matthew said that they thought that if they asked for a formal meeting, her lawyer would get involved, which is something people... When I say people, I mean men, often say during uh, these kinds of legal situations where they say, let's talk without the lawyers because the lawyers, the lawyers make everything complicated. Can't we just talk? Yeah. And so that, that was Matthew's defence that I thought they were just going to talk without lawyers and try and talk sensibly. And so I'm assuming that was what Thomas said as well. Yeah, but of course that was never Neil's intention at all. So do you know anything of the aftermath in terms of has Thomas gone on to inherit the property, the older brother? I know that her son from her first marriage yes, yes, came forward and contested the will with the blessing of Glenys's family. And I think there was some suggestion too that the only reason Glenys didn't have her first son in her will was because she was afraid of Neil, of what he would do if he knew that she'd done that. Yeah. I understand that Thomas was still living in the Mount Gambier area for quite some time. I don't know if he's still there. I know that there was a fair bit of um, legal argument over what happened with her estate. It's fascinating though, isn't it? I mean, because, you know, Thomas has um, not been convicted of any crime and yeah, it's hard for me as a mother and as a human being to believe that two children, any children could really do this to their mother. It's so hard to accept. I mean, that's why this case is so sad, right? Yeah. It's so awful too. It's like the imagery of the literally the packed bags waiting by the door. Yeah. For, you know, in her new life with a lovely new partner, she's finally gathered up the courage to ask what for what she deserves in terms of some kind of financial settlement and to just be allowed to get on with her life. She even said to a friend, I think, you know, in a farming community everyone has guns around, and I think she said to someone, you should shoot my ex-husband. And they sort of, you know, laughed and said, you know, you can't just go around shooting people. And she said, well, someone needs to shoot him before he kills me, you know. So she she spoke pretty openly about that. 
I don't think people often take women seriously enough when they say things like this. I think a lot of times women know how dangerous their partners and ex-partners are. I've heard of this before. Women will say very clearly to other people, I think he could kill me. I think he might kill me. I think he will kill me. I want someone to help me before he kills me. And other people kind of laugh, like literally will laugh it off, say, oh, come on. Oh, come on. He, he might be an asshole, but he's not going to kill you. He's not going to kill anyone. Yeah. And I think today that's one of the, when they look at the risks of a domestic violence relationship, the risk level of it, the woman's level of fear is a real high indicator. I mean, look at Hannah Clark, for example. You know, I don't think anyone needs reminding who Hannah was. She and her three children were murdered by her ex-partner as she was driving them to school. Her ex got into the car with a, a can of fuel and killed them. She said to her parents, and her parents, you know, obviously took her fears very seriously. I'm not suggesting otherwise at all, but she said to her parents, who's going to look after my children when he kills me? You know, for her, it was a when, it wasn't an if. And, you know, again, very sadly, she was correct. Thank you to our guest today from the Courier Mail, Kate Kiriakou. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 YARN on 13 92 76 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.